Welcome to Setsang. Hello, Vishwanath. Can you please talk about seeking enlightenment as a parent? A lot of people believe that you need to become a monk or a nun or a sadhu to wake up in the world. They believe that you have to renounce the world to wake up. And that's not true. You can wake up in the marketplace as a parent or as a, per, a lay person who's holding down a job. You just have to have the right practices in place. Someone who's woken up has given their life to truth. And so truth is number one on the mind's list. But under that number one can come a wife or a husband or ch and children or a job, art, sport, anything. The only thing that really needs to occur is that truth, who we really are, what we really are, gets put first. And quite often on the way to that, heart gets put first, the way of the heart, which is a beautiful way to live this life because it allows you to learn to get out of the way, which serves enlightenment as well. So it's absolutely possible to wake up in the marketplace, but certain attitudes and certain things have to be learned. You have to learn to accept life as it is rather than constantly resist life as it is. And so acceptance is a very big part in training a mind to support truth because a contracting mind, a resistant mind, is a closed mind. A closed mind doesn't perceive love. A closed mind won't support enlightenment. And so there is still things that have to be done, but it's absolutely possible to wake up in the marketplace as a father, as a mother, as someone who holds down a job. You just have to put truth first or heart first. In putting uh, something before yourself, like heart or truth, you're learning to get out of the way. You're learning to diminish the I. And once that's uh, achieved in that you've actually developed a pattern or a program, a default pattern of putting yourself aside, being less than, not contracting against the world, but in acceptance of the world, You've created a mind that has higher consciousness and you've created a mind that can have peace even before awakening because it's learnt to accept life as it is. It's not fighting with the world anymore. It's not struggling with the world anymore. It's let go. It's allowing the river to take it rather than it trying to push the river.
but it's up to you. You create your reality by the way you think and by your actions in the world. You are totally responsible. If you want to learn to relax your mind, learn to let go, learn to be open, you have to practice it. If all you do is practice resistance, contraction, righteousness, arrogance, well, that's all you'll really ever be good at. Because whatever we practice, that's what we're good at. Someone who's peaceful inside has practiced let go. They've practiced acceptance. Otherwise, they wouldn't be like that. So it's absolutely possible for someone to wake up in the marketplace as a parent. The opportunities for practicing surrender, for practicing acceptance are so numerous every day as a parent, as a partner of someone holding down a job. If you take those opportunities and practice acceptance, practice surrender, your consciousness levels will go through the roof. If all you do is practice resistance, you get angry, you get frustrated, you contract, well, your consciousness levels will stay the same. The ball really is in your court. What do you practice? Are there any questions? Any statements? Any challenges to this teaching today? The first question is as follows. As a seeker, what did parenthood teach you? It taught me to put myself aside in I was a bit of, um, I liked to party. I liked to have a good life. I liked to have uh, lots of things happening, going out to many places. And I decided that it was time for me to stay home and be a dad and uh, with my wife and my kids. So I set up my business so I could operate from home I set up a clinic in the front of the house that used to be a doctor's house, so it had a clinic already set up. And I worked from home as a naturopath. And I was there with my kids. And as my kids grew, and my wife and I decided to homeschool them, and so we homeschooled them. But I stopped partying. Instead of having going out, I had people over. I made my house childproof so that they were safe in my house. And I made a point of being there for my kids, uh, which was me putting myself aside the things that I wanted to do to be with them and to be with my wife. And it was a big change because I was very a very outgoing person. It was a big change. And so I had to surrender quite a bit. But in the totality of surrender, comes peace. In the totality of acceptance comes peace no matter what. And I use the word totality because you can't begrudgingly accept or begrudgingly surrender. 
you actually have to be total in it. And then there is peace. Did becoming a parent change how you practiced towards higher consciousness and enlightenment? No, not really. I was already practicing. Um, I was a practiced meditator. I meditated every day. I also practiced uh, self-inquiry uh, every day. And I practiced openness pretty much continuously as much every time I could find myself in any form of resistance or contraction, I'd see how fast I could get open. What it did do with my formal meditation um, was it shifted the time because I used to meditate during the day, but after I have children, I started meditating at night after they went to bed. And so um, my family was always in bed pretty much by nine o'clock or before 7.30 with the kids a lot of the time. And uh, about nine o'clock, I'd start go to my room and I'd start meditating and I'd meditate through till sometimes one o'clock in the morning because no one was going to ring me. Uh, the kids were asleep. Uh, wife, and, <laughs> wife had gone to bed. It was all, it was, a, it was a perfect time to meditate. So I wasn't going to get interfered with from the outside world. Uh, of course that, that was a few years on after having, having the kids in the beginning, there was a lot of carrying them around at night time because <laughs> taking care of them, but still the meditation practices didn't stop. The self-inquiry didn't stop. The practice of openness, the conscious practice of openness did not stop. These practices continued right through. Would you say that it's any more challenging or motivating for a parent to seek enlightenment? Look, I have lived in ashrams, but only short for short periods. Uh, I did two four-month month stretches in ashrams where I was just dedicated to uh, mystery school um, and the accommodation and everything was very much, I guess, like a monk. Um, but I, I don't see it, that as any more difficult or any more easier than having a family, really. Um, there's, there's difficulties in both worlds. I, I found that uh, in, in being a parent, in having to take care of little kids, in having to be with um, you know, uh, my wife, lots of opportunities for let go, lots of opportunities for surrender, lots of opportunities to put myself aside for the benefit of others. And during that period, I was also working as a naturopath. So lots of opportunity to put myself aside for clients as well. Uh, I guess it was more layback when I was in uh, an ashram. I don't think the opportunities for surrender were as great. <laughs> I think we um, I can learn more about acceptance and surrender by being with a partner than we can by ourselves because when we're with people that we really care about that we really love they can trip us up 
They can find all our wounding. They can find all the different places that we haven't showed up in yet and healed. And so there's a lot of opportunity in relationship, in being in relationship for uh, raising consciousness levels. And the thing about the practice of openness, the practice of being present to what's real, even the practice of self-inquiry, nobody needs to know that you're doing it. You can be doing it uh, in company and nobody knows you're practicing openness. No one knows you're being present to what's real. Nobody knows you're self-inquiring. And so all of these practices can go on no matter what's happening. You could be cooking in the kitchen. You could be vacuum cleaning. You could be you could have friends over and you're practicing openness while they're annoying you. <laughs> There's so many opportunities. Next, we have a question from Susha. Hello, Hello Susha. Hello. Hello. Um, I have a teenage daughter and... Um, she can be pretty manipulative. I always wonder and I'll have a struggle where is the line to surrender, accept and to be effective. Like I always struggle with that. Could you help me with that, please? Yeah, it's it's really simple. Uh, in, in a family structure, there's a certain there's certain levels of power. Who has the power? Who says what's going to be done and, and who has to do it? And all, all ships really uh, operate best with one captain, though you've, and you're a single parent, so if there was someone else in the, in the picture, it would be a little different. But if you're in charge of the house, it's your house, uh, and they're living in your house, uh, you set the rules and they comply. Uh, but that's across the board for the whole world. You know, it's a bit like uh, if you rent your house to someone and they don't pay the rent, well, uh, they've got themselves kicked out. You didn't kick them out. And the same goes for any kind of uh, setup that we have where you're the boss, you're, the, you're in charge, it's your show. You make the rules and you make, them, you make them work. And if people don't want to work, there's consequences. If, if your daughter wants to do everything her own way, well, she can always leave. Um, or she can comply. It's up to you. There's uh, really only room for one captain. So where does surrender fit in, in this situation? How, what does one surrender to? Surrender is when, okay, so, so say your daughter does something that you really don't like and you find yourself contracting. Surrender is not contracting. Don't contract. Don't support resistance in yourself. Accept that she's like this and then do something about it. People think that acceptance means you become uh, useless. It's mm. not true. You can operate from acceptance and still be effective in the material world. It's not so much about changing things. It's about what happens inside of you, what contracts inside of you and how fast can you get that open? What goes into resistance inside of you? How fast can you stop that resistance while still being effective in the material world? Well, still, in this case, telling your daughter what needs to happen and maybe putting consequences in place for behavior that might be negative. You can do all of that from openness. You don't have to close to do any of that. Yeah, it's easier said than done. 
so the surrender is still there. The practice of surrender is still there. The practice of acceptance is still there. It doesn't mean that you've become totally inert and useless and ineffective. It just means you've practiced acceptance and surrender and remained open while dealing with whatever you have to deal with. Okay. Do you see the difference? Yeah, I do. I do see the difference. Um, I, I tend to go towards inert, inertness. I tend to just let it go, all of it. Um, ah, there's so much danger in doing that, Susha, because yeah. when we let someone disrespect us, whether it's our children or someone else, we're basically teaching them they may do it again. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the trouble I have. I mm. So you've taught your daughter to behave the way she's behaving through your through your inaction probably mm. there's so find a mirror and you'll find the person who's responsible for your daughter's behavior yeah and i also find it, is, it has the same <laughs> she has the same um patterns that i am dealing with which is another thing that's very interesting to to watch and um i role modeled her her patterns all all this all these years, she's 17. And um, even if I change, and I'm not going to change overnight, it's going to be a while before I can be a role model. And I don't know if that's going to work. And, you know, if, if I change, can, can, will she change? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Hmm. You see, she's too old. How, how old is your daughter? 17. 17, yeah, she's too old. Um, you're going to train children. You, you train them when they're young. She's already, she's already well set with her default patterns. Mm. So this is the thing: we, if we're going to if we're going to raise children, they're going to role model off us, and um, they're going to copy us. Mm -hmm. No matter what we say, they're going to copy what we do. And uh, and psychologists reckon by the age of seven to nine, they've learnt most of their default patterns for life. Yeah. Because she has work cut out for herself. But, and I will put a, a caveat on that. Look, the world operates this, this way. We are all responsible for our actions. And if we do the wrong thing, there is a price to be paid, you know. And so we live in a world of reward and consequence. If someone does the wrong thing, there's a consequence. If they do the right thing, there's a consequence as well. Quite often it's a reward. If it's a detriment, well... The other way goes and so if you're running a household and your daughter's there and she's 17 years old she's not complying put in a consequence yeah it's how the rest of the world operates i mean if you get if you decide to take your car out in the highway and you speed and you get caught well there's a consequence you're going to get a ticket you're going to get a fine yes. if you don't speed you don't get the fine you don't get the ticket i understand Thank you. Thank you, Susha. The next question is from Neil. Hello, Vishwan. Hello, Neil. Right. So uh, I was reading this book called The Rebel by Osho. And in that book, I noticed that he mentions family as one of the greatest traps that society has used for millennia to keep man a slave. So is that the reason why Gautam Buddha left his family? 
more than likely, um, what I'm here to say is that it doesn't have to be that way. If you're willing to practice, put spiritual practices in place while you're in your family, you can make it work. You don't, you don't have to abandon your family like Gautama the Buddha did. Uh, he, he abandoned his wife and he abandoned his child. I'm saying you don't have to do that to find out who you are and to live as who you are. You don't have to. Um, back in Gautama the Buddha's day, that's what sadhus did. They, they, they left their families, they became beggars. And so he was a very traditional Hindu man back in his day. And Osho, well, Osho didn't have a family. He didn't have children. And so that was his experience of it. My experience of it's very different. I got into spiritual practice at a very young age, but then I got married and I had children and I continued the spiritual practices. I didn't stop. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, I've got one more question. Is there an ideal time to get up in the morning? Because I've heard some meditators say there's this time called the Brahma Mahurta around 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. when one should get up and start meditating. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, I get up around about 5 o'clock every morning, which is pretty early, but that's just because probably because of my age. I go to bed late and I get up early. Um, meditation needs to be every moment. This idea that you have meditation for an hour or two hours or 20 minutes a day, that's not true. That's rubbish. You get present to whatever is happening around you and you become present to everything all the time. That's what's best. Even Osho said that meditation needs to be every moment. And I agree. But we've been trained at school to live in our heads. So we've got to reclaim the reality by practicing being present to what's real. Because up till the age of four or five, we were present to what is real. Then we went to school and we lost it all because we learned to live in our heads so we could solve problems and get, get results and get a certificate on the wall that says we've passed something. Meditation needs to be every moment. From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, be present to what is real. Always present. Always present to what is real. And I, I tried following the advice that you gave to be always present, try focusing on your breath. But I've noticed that even when I'm focusing on my breath, I'm still able to think about other things at the same time. So yeah, there... it's true. But I did this other thing and it was called, I called it walking in Zen. And I'd, I'd walk along beach fronts or, water, or river fronts uh, for long time, long periods of time. And I'd be watching my footfalls. I'd be watching my breath. I'd be feeling the sun on my face and the wind on my skin. I'd be feeling my body movements. I'd be hearing the sound of the surf or whatever was around me. Now, when you put your awareness on that many things that are real at once, you can't think because if you do, you'll lose it. And so I called it walking in Zen where I'd have my awareness on everything that was happening in my body and around me, which was real. Now, if I started thinking, I'd lose awareness on that. So I'd just keep coming back to what was happening with my feet, my breath, my skin, uh, the sounds. And I used to love it, called it walking in Zen. All right. All right. I'll, I'll definitely try that. All right. Thank no, it's you. good. Thank you. you but you don't have to walk on a beach. You can do it in a city, just being present to everything that you're seeing, you know.
All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Ryan. Thanks, Neil. Next question has been written by Kelly. How do you kick a 30 year old son out of your house without feeling guilty? <laughs> Look, I was brought up by Roman Catholic priests and brothers and uh, they manipulated and controlled everything through fear and guilt. And I learned about guilt when I was very, very young and, that, uh, and I, wasn't prepared, I wasn't prepared to be manipulated by it. So I gave up guilt. I had a look at guilt and saw how it works. You know, you, you get to feel sorry for something, then you beat yourself up. And that's, that's terrible. Never, ever beat yourself up. Always be okay with you as you are. Uh, beating yourself up wounds you. Nothing wrong with feeling regret for things you may have done. That's different. Regret's a great heart opener, actually. But guilt, don't ever serve guilt. <laughs> how do, how can you feel guilty about kicking out a 30 years? Mate, he should have been out there, out, out of the house 10 years ago, 30 years old and still at home. Come on. My gosh, I was married when I was 21. <laughs> this is crazy. I know it's very common that, that, that men and women stay home with mum and dad for a lot longer, but that's just crazy. Don't feel guilty about it. He should be the one that's feeling bad, not you. He's the one that's still at home with mum. Or dad, it's like, don't feel guilty. You're doing the right thing. You're, you're claiming your space. He needs to get a life. The next question has been written by a viewer. Do you have any thoughts about how to be a great daughter to parents who fought constantly in front of their kids? Do I have any thoughts about how to be a great daughter? Read the last bit of it again. It's not kind of making, it's not gelling. How to, be, how to be a great daughter to parents who fought constantly in front of their kids. Oh, I see. You're holding something against them. Right. Empathy. You see, everybody's operating out of their, the patterns that they developed when they were children. And they don't have much choice in that unless they've raised their consciousness levels. Everyone's doing the best they can. They always are, depending on how they're programmed. And when you see that in yourself, that you see some of the things that you were involved in when you might have had lower consciousness levels because you might have been younger, you get to see, well, at the time you were doing the best that you could but it was wrong. And you can see that now because your consciousness levels have risen. And when you have compassion for yourself, because you can see that the things that you were involved in weren't right, but that you were still doing the best you could at the time, because that's where your consciousness levels were at. When you can have empathy for you and compassion for you, you can have compassion for everybody and you can have empathy for everybody because everybody is just operating out of their patterns from their childhood, the same as you were. Do you feel more affection towards your children than towards other people? No, I'm very fortunate. I love everyone. 
<laughs> I love my children, but I love everyone. I even love the people who don't like me. <laughs> this is the a byproduct of having a, a mind, mind that is open. If you are wide open, if you're not defended, if you don't have prejudices, love is everywhere. It's always everywhere. And I love human beings. I love them all. And so when we talk affection, I might show more affection to my children because it's appropriate. It's inappropriate to show affection, <laughs> affection to everyone else. I give my kids a hug uh, and I tell them how much I love them. Uh, and I, I don't tend to do that with everyone I meet. That would be that would get me into a lot of trouble, you know. Going to um, the supermarket and giving the checkout girl a big hug and telling her how much you love her. No, I don't think that would be appropriate. So maybe I don't show as much affection to everybody else, but I do love them just as much. Next question is from a viewer: Is hitting your kids appropriate? No. No, violence is not appropriate. Though consequences for negative behavior is appropriate because we do have to train our kids to live in a world and behave in a world that is acceptable to the world. And so consequences for negative behavior is definitely a need, the same as rewards are a need. But hitting a child is just violence and all it does is teach the child to be violent. Why is it sometimes easier to feel love for your own children than for other people? Well, that would be primal bonding. So a lot of people mis, uh, mistake uh, primal bonding for love. They, they haven't had a close look at what primal bonding is, the bonding we get between uh, couples, the bonding we get uh, between ourselves and children, the bonding we get between ourselves and our friends. And this is primal bonding. It's part of the survival mechanism of the mind. And quite often people mistake that for love. Uh, if you really examine love, love, does, love is not directional really, it just is. And if you're experiencing love, you'll look at anyone and you'll love them. But primal bonding is different. That's a, uh, a connection that is primitive inside all of us. And it quite often can seem like love. But love is, love takes no prisoners. It owns no one. <laughs> True love is just so beautiful. Can being a parent help you have a more intense spiritual practice due to this strong primal bonding between a mother and a child? When my, when my children were really young, when they were babies, I'd hold them and just be with them. You could call it meditation. I wouldn't be doing anything. I'd just be holding them and maybe I'd walk with them, holding them and and melting into them. And I found it as a wonderful way to actually disappear completely as an I and just be a nothing, a nobody. 
And then when they get a bit louder and a little bit more uh, aged, things change a bit. But kids, kids are wonderful. They're, they're, they're beautiful little beings that uh, bring a lot of joy into your life, a lot of sweetness into your life. And also they give you something that you can direct your love towards. It's, a, it's such a funny subject, the subject of love. I, I used to think I loved until I saw that love was independent of the I, that love just is. And then the I tries to claim it and says, my love, I, I love. But it's not true. Love is real. And if you really examine the I, you'll find it is not. It's just made up of imagination. So how can something that's made up of imagination claim something that's real, really? The mind sees love, sees a person, says it loves that person, but really it's just love. And love has only one quality, it loves. The following question has been written by a viewer. How do you forgive so easily? Sometimes it's too difficult for me to forgive. I, I never forgive. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I never forgive. I just don't carry anything. The past is gone. Why carry anything? I don't hold any grudges. I don't hold anything. I let it all go. Why forgive? If I have to forgive someone, it means I'm blaming them. If I'm blaming them, it means I'm a victim. If I, <laughs> you have to volunteer to be a victim, I refuse to volunteer to be a victim under any circumstances. There's nothing to forgive. I just let it go. Let everything go. The past is gone. I carry nothing. I love freedom. The following question has been written by a viewer. I'm a 37-year-old woman and I don't feel the call to become a parent at this stage. Do you think that the primal programming to reproduce and have children can be less present in spiritual seekers? I can't say that I know the answer to that question. I just don't know. You know, you'd have to put it in the maybe column, but I just don't know. I just don't know. If I obtain enlightenment, will I have no desire to care for my young children? So awakening occurred 22 years ago and I was in, I was uh, married and I had three children, um, one from a previous marriage and two from the marriage I was in. They were very young. They were uh, preschool and in awakening it did feel like that there was no connection any longer to my past the vishrat that had been there had, had actually died it dropped and it was a bit like looking looking at my family looking at my kids it was a bit like looking at someone else's photo album um, it, it, the, the, the detachment was very strong. But 
as a man, because the mind is still there, even though enlightenment happens, the mind is still there. And the mind was responsible for those children, responsible for that wife, and took responsibilities seriously before awakening and continued to be a husband and continued to be a father, even though the detachment was very strong. There was no running away. There was no trying to get away. There was no escapism happening. Everything was okay as it was. Though it was quite different. It took about a week or two for my wife to realize completely what had happened. And she made the statement, I've lost my husband, haven't I? And I had to acknowledge that to be true. The one that had married her, that I had dropped in unconditional surrender to truth. But the body was still here, the mind was still here, just the identity, the somebody had gone. That's all. And I stayed in that marriage and I supported that uh, my wife and I supported my kids. And um, so there was a there was a big change. I can't say there wasn't, but I didn't go anywhere. I didn't run away. I stayed and I took care. Whatever your nature is like before enlightenment, it's likely to be the same after enlightenment. It's not like the personality changes, just the I, the identification with it disappears. If you are meek and mild before awakening, you'll be meek and mild after awakening. If you were aggressive and loud before awakening, you'd probably be aggressive and loud after awakening. People have a lot of false ideas about enlightenment, but what it looks like. It's going to look like you. It's going to have <clears throat> use your personality, use your body movements, your way you language things. It's just that the identity, the one that thinks it was a somebody, won't be there anymore because awareness will be aware of itself. And the false one will have dropped. That's all. Do you have to give up your children at some stage to become enlightened? It's not physically give them up, but it's a bit like everything else. You can't hang on to anything. You don't have to physically give up anything. You can have everything if you want, but you can't be attached to it. You have to be in a state of let go where your mind is relaxed and free. And so you can have whatever you like. You can have money, you can have cars, you can have houses, you can have children, you can have wives. You just can't really be attached to any of it. And so it's not like you need to live in a monastery where you don't have any of those things. You just let everything go and you keep letting everything go until nothing sticks. Because anything that uh, you're attached to is going to drag you back into ego-based reality. Because when it gets threatened, you're going to go into contraction to protect it. And so you don't. You don't attach yourself to anything. You take care of everything, but you don't attach yourself to anything. That's best. All attachments cause... <laughs> all attachments are prisons anyway. No matter what it is, whether it's money, power, houses children, wives, 
husbands, it's all, it's all just prisons anyway. Let go. But uh, there comes another subject. People say, well, how do you let go? And I'm not really good at answering that question because at awakening, everything just let go. I don't think I let go of anything. It just happened by itself. It started happening before awakening. Everything just started dropping away. All the attachments started dropping away by, by itself. How did your enlightenment affect your children? You probably need to ask them that. <laughs> it, it, I'd say it profoundly affected them, but you'd have to ask them that. Because they got to grow up in a Buddha field. They got to grow up in an energy field that supported higher consciousness and enlightenment. So you'd need to talk to them about that. Does young children being around an enlightened teacher mean that they have better karma for enlightenment in this lifetime? Karma. Look, my understanding of karma is if your karma is good enough, you can be in the presence of a Buddha because the best chance for any human being to wake up is to be in the presence of a Buddha. And if your karma is good enough, you can be in the presence of a Buddha. But it might not be good enough to hear the Buddha. And so hearing a Buddha and being in the presence of one are two separate things. When you truly hear a Buddha, you let go of everything. Because that's all every Buddha teaches. Surrender. It's the doorway to your own true nature. All suffering is caused by desires and hanging on to things, attachments. Surrender. Be free. From your perspective, what is the best thing we can teach our children so they can live happily and peacefully? love yeah that's what children need but that's what everyone needs not just children love you can facilitate uh, a mind that will support love by being open and when you perceive love you take care of everyone and everything because that's how love affects the mind and when your children see you doing that they'll role model off you Love is the most beautiful thing on this plane. It's the true jewel of consciousness. A lot of people miss it because they're too closed. They're too busy chasing their tails to make money or survive in some way. Openness counts for absolutely everything. It supports love. It supports the perception of love. And if our children see us 
to be loving, caring adults who take care of everything and everyone, they will copy us. Do you think there is any disadvantage to not having children as a seeker? <laughs> Look, I'm a firm believer in what is is good. <laughs> I'm a fatalist. What is is what is meant to be. Otherwise, it would not be so. Whether you have children, good. If you don't have children, good. <laughs> it's like whatever is is good. Whatever is is okay. It's all okay. It's this attitude of mind that supports higher consciousness, a mind that is okay with the world as it is, a mind that doesn't go to war, a mind that stays open. This mind will support higher consciousness, enlightenment and heart. And you're responsible for your mind. It doesn't matter how you've been programmed. You are now responsible for your mind. You're the one who can practice openness. You're the one that can practice meditation. You're the one that can practice self-inquiry. It's up to you. The next question has been written by Manasa. How to prevent children from getting influenced by people who aren't seekers around in the family itself? Well, I, for, with my own children, I kept them as close as I could while they were kids. So they had, they had access to uh, watching and witnessing a way of life that was um, peaceful and beautiful. Um, I didn't stop them from going and hanging out with their peers or um, seeing other adults behaving in certain ways, but they had to make their own judgments. If they wanted to talk to me about it, they could. Uh, basically, the two role models that children tend to take their influence from, particularly up to the age of five or six, are their parents. And so it's up to you how you are, what you do in, the, in your relationship, how you present yourself to your children, because they're going to copy you more than anyone else. As a matter of fact, kids are more than likely going to take off their mother more than their father because they're usually closer to their mother when they're very young. And it's up to you. What do you like? How do you present yourself? What do you show them? Because no matter what you say to them, that, that, that doesn't make a difference. They're going to copy you. They're going to watch you. They role model off you. What do you like? What do you like as a teacher, as a role model? Do you think that it could be harder for a woman to put truth first before, before her children than for a man? Could be. I wouldn't know. I'm a man. <laughs> could be. I don't know.
it seems like parenting can be spiritually demanding work. Can we work on ourselves whilst being good parents at the same time? Or do we need to do the work before? I can only talk about my own history, really. I started to work. I didn't have children until I was 33, 34, actually, 34. I started to work on myself when I was 19. And so I had 15 years of working on myself before I had children. 15 years of taking myself apart, watching my mind, uh, removing limiting programs, studying child psychology, studying psychology. So I can only really talk from my own experience there that by the time my children came along, I was ready for them. How do you feel when a new child is brought into the world? It's funny, you know, because people ask, how do you feel? That would involve some kind of thought process to say, well, I feel this way because of this. I love everybody and without thought, uh, newborns as well as old, older people. I don't have a prejudice. And so when I see a child, I love the child. If I want to go into the rationale of the world we live in, there's a certain level of, well, I, I, could, I know this child is going to suffer until they die because that's what happens when, for, to us all. We're all um, born and then we get caught in desires and attachments which create suffering and resistance to us. And this happens to everybody. We all lose everything we've got over a time period. We lose absolutely everything because we eventually die. And this is the life that we're born into. Uh, I know there's a chance in this lifetime for people to wake up to their true nature and to live as that. And so to that end, I teach. I mean, I, some people might feel sad when a baby is born because uh, it's born into a world of uh, suffering. Some people might feel joy because they think it's going to be a lot of fun. They obviously haven't had a look at their own lives. <laughs> but <laughs> you have a look and see. It's only when you bring your own judgments in that there's a problem. From my perspective, every human being is beingness. They're not actually the animal. They're not really the body and mind. They're beingness, showing itself in different forms. Unfortunately, uh, if we resist life, which most people do, we suffer. If we don't accept life as it is, we suffer. And so when you meet people who are very miserable, you know that they're resisting life aggressively. It's not necessarily what's happening to them, but it's their resistance to what's happening to them. Because some of the happiest people I ever met were on the streets of India uh, as beggars because they were... Uh, they'd been, their bodies had been damaged and they were on the streets of India begging and they were the happiest bunch of people I ever met. Happiness has to do with attitude, not with circumstance. If you accept life as it is, you can be happy no matter what.
The next question has been written by Manasa. In India, grandparents tend to pamper children a lot. As parents, if we try taking charge and tell the elders not to do so, as kids can get adamant and demanding, they feel bad. What to do then? <laughs> ah, what a trap. <laughs> Acceptance is the way to go, you know, but you've also got to recognize that the children are actually under your control and in your care. And whatever you deem to be best for those children should be, uh, should be done. And so there were certain children, there were certain kids when my kids were very young that I wouldn't let my kids play with because they, they were little rat bags and they were going to lead them astray. And so I stopped them. There were certain people that I wouldn't allow us to associate with my children because as a parent, it was my job to protect them, my children because they were vulnerable and they were uh, innocent. Uh, with with grandparents, you can tell your parents what to do and what not to do. They're your children. You see, this is the thing. You think you're powerless. You're not powerless. They're your children. You've had them. You're the one that's responsible for them. Nobody else. You. If you if you allow them to be um, yeah, made toxic or poisoned in any way, that's your doing because you've allowed it to be so. Our job as parents is to protect our kids because they can't protect themselves. They don't know how to yet. Sometimes you have to make pretty tough decisions when you're dealing, when you're trying to take care of your family. Your parents don't need protecting because they're adults, but your children do because they don't know what's right for them yet. And you're going to guide them. You have to be able to be strong for them. The next question is as follows. I've heard you say that you experienced unconditional love for the first time looking at your newborn daughter. How do you transmute the love for your own children? which I think can be part of the primal programming to an unconditional love towards everything and everyone. Okay. It wasn't the first time that I'd experienced unconditional love. I had experienced unconditional love uh, nearly two years earlier uh, <laughs> while I was lost at sea. Uh, my boat had sunk and my partner and I were in the water for 18 hours. And um, there was a cyclone happening. It was very, very windy. Very, the waves were, the seas were huge. And uh, we had life jackets on, but we were in the water and we had hypothermia. And there was sharks circling us. And I didn't think we were going to survive. I actually was quite convinced I was going to die. And I looked across at my partner, who wasn't my wife then. I married her later. And I realized that I was responsible for her death because it was my idea to go out there and I had to check the weather. And when I looked across at her, this uh, overwhelming, unconditional love just appeared. It was just so beautiful. And I had never experienced anything like it before. And it was non-personal. 
but it was there. And it didn't last long, but it was there. And then I, I, I kind of wondered about it for the next two years because I didn't have it. But then I found it again when I was part, when um, the midwife passed me my daughter, had just been born, and this unconditional love arose. And this unconditional love uh, was non-directional. It was just love. It loved the it loved the child, it loved the doctors, it loved the nurses, it loved my partner, it loved the room we're in. It was just overwhelming love. And I realized that this is here and it has nothing to do with me, but it is experienced by me as a result of my openness that occurred firstly when I was in the water looking at my partner with regret and secondly when I held my newborn baby love appeared. I think it was always there. And my experience of it nowadays is it's always here. It's just that as human beings, we tend to be too cl closed to perceive it because of the upbringing we had, where we closed down to this, we closed down to that, we protected ourselves from this. And we walk around quite closed, unconsciously quite closed, and it stops us from perceiving this beautiful love that is actually always here, this unconditional love. And so the talk about transmuting it or shifting it to somewhere else, no, it's everywhere already. It's just your openness that may not be there. And you say, well, I'm open. Yeah, but are you open all the way? Have you had a look at what's happening inside of you? Is there any resistance whatsoever? Or are you just wide open? Because in wide open, Love is everywhere. It's perceived everywhere. And it's so beautiful. Openness counts for everything. And love is the true jewel of consciousness. Thank you for satsang.